1: another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, it's, uh, I'm David Campbell, host, and I am joined, as always, every week by Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, it is Thanksgiving week. What do you like to eat on
0: Thanksgiving? Well, for the last, I don't know how many years, it actually is Turkey from the Haven of Rest, Akron City Mission, because uh, we spend the evening there. My wife, uh, Roberta, and Gloria Williams is like a sister to us. We do the service there, talk to the guys. They serve up the food. We eat it. So that is our Thanksgiving most of the time. And sometimes I go to church somewhere in the morning or else um, visit uh, my mom, Melva, um, in the nursing home. So It's really, I I view it as a day, they say Thanksgiving, it's great if you have a big family, and boy, if you're hosting one of those dinners, you know about having to give it up for the the good of the team, but (laughs) in this case, we don't have those type of families, ours is smaller, so Thanksgiving is a way to give thanks to, to be with others, and that stuff just lifts me up.
1: I love that you do that, Terry. And there's there's so many great there's so many people who are doing that kind of stuff this week where mm-hmm. it's about connecting with people and giving thanks for what we have and just getting out in the community. I I've always really admire that you do that. It's a great thing. So.
0: But the flip side is, if you have a family that's around it now, like I have one brother, he was in Sarasota. Roberta has one sister. She lives in Fredonia, right over the border. By the way, she only has three and a half feet of snow. They got it. They got off easy. <laughs> But the point is we don't get together with them. You know, our parents have passed away in that. So now the flip side is if you have a bunch of people, a bunch of family, get together with them, enjoy them, because I can speak from experience, um, they die off on you. Yeah, and as we've talked about, stay away from politics. <laughs> yes, it's, it's time, dumb to talk about that. Yeah. If you want to just complain about the Browns or something, you know.
1: Yeah, time is so short with Bring family. up Donovan you should, Mitchell. You should, that
0: should make somebody happy.
1: <laughs> you shouldn't spend it arguing about uh, the midterm elections. Oh, so, all right. Lord. Donovan Mitchell, much more pleasant topic of conversation. So let's start with the Cavs today, Terry. What do you think?
0: Well, I was looking at, you know, they 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 lost, they lost had that five-game losing streak, and part of it was Garland coming back and not being 100% from the eye injury. But I also think a fair amount of that was Garland and, and Mitchell having to figure out how to play together. Because, uh, remember, Garland got hurt in the first game, then they had a six-game winning streak. So it really, with Mitchell, they really hadn't acclimated to that. And also, for whatever reason, they just got lazy during that five-game losing streak. They had the uh, uh, worst uh, defensive—basically, they ranked 30th out of 30 teams' defensive efficiency during that five-game losing streak. Now, they've won three in a row. They're back to number one during that time defensively. So I woke down, all right, now Garland and Mitchell playing together. The last three games, all wins— Garland is averaging 31 points. Mitchell is averaging 25. Now, that could be good or bad. It's good if you're shooting a good percentage and doing that. It's bad if you're taking way too many shots. Garland, for the 31 points, shooting 52%. Mitchell, for the 25 points, shooting 49%. So they are playing together well. You can see there are times when, how about this? Garland, 22 assists in those three games. Mitchell, 20. And JB's doing a good job of making sure that you, you could take one out and put the other one in, that kind of stuff. But the big deal, and this is something we talked about in our podcast for a while, was get LaVert out of that lineup. And, you know, I voted for Omar Stevens, but it could have been Dean Wade. It could have been our Any of those three. Put them in there. They need a guy that doesn't need to see the ball and will defend.
1: And I really liked what Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the Cavaliers, he had a great anecdote in his story today, mm-hmm. his follow-up about, I mean, Lamar Stevens, you know you're going to get some length from him and you're going to get some defense, right? But I loved this story. He went. To, this is the quote from Donovan Mitchell last night about Lamar Stevens. He came to the huddle and he said, I was getting my ass busted. <laughs> they They hit two shots on me. And he was like, what are you going to do? Are you going to guard or are you going to let them bust your ass? I don't think anybody (laughs) scored on me after that. You need a guy like that. I respect and appreciate that. It wasn't just about me. He's told others too. When you have a guy that's vocal about that and not afraid to speak up to everybody on the team the same way, it kind of lifts you up and gets your energy up. So there, here, here's Lamar Stevens, a guy who has fought and clawed his mm-hmm. way to get to where he is in the NBA. He's playing in a game against a team that you know that the, that the Cavs lost to last year in the, in the play-in tournament in the Hawks. It's a big game. They had it circled on their calendar. And Lamar Stevens comes in and tells the team – new superstar to start playing defense and stop stop being so soft. I thought that was just such a cool story about a guy like Lamar Stevens, who's having an impact, not just stat wise, but he's here's, they talk about LeBron and and other players making guys around them better. Here's Lamar Stevens making guys better around him who are, who have a bigger reputation, make more than him and have a bigger presence in the league. And he really made an impact last night.
0: When I've heard the thing team culture so many times, my eyes have ceased rolling back into my head. They don't even open up anymore. My ears shut down. But this is an example of team culture, and it began with J.B. Bickerstaff and the assistant on playing defense. So really all Stevens was doing was parroting his coach in a different way, man-to-man, teammate-to-teammate. Secondly, the players know Stevens, what it took for him to get here, They realize, this this guy's the second leading scorer, I think, in Penn State history, and he's given up his offense totally just to fit in and make it work. And they saw how J.B. was trying all these other people in front of him, and he worked hard in practice. He waited. He kept his mouth shut. Uh, Those guys are like that. I mean, Terry Francona will tell you, Austin Hedges is like that. You may say, gee, what is that about? He's batting, you know, 102 and this. But I go, no, no, it's deeper than that. And, you know, and Hedges could go out there. I mean, a couple of times I've seen him like almost go Tony Pena. How uh, Tony Pena used to go with Jose Mesa, like kind of take his finger and hit him in the chest. I've seen it wasn't quite like that, but it's like Hedges got very close to Karinczyk a couple of times early in the year to try to get him together out there. And, and he, he was like, get behind the plate, and get hit in 125. But they don't do that. Because they know who the guy is, and they know what he means to the team, and they know that the culture set by the slash manager or coach is what this is all about. So it was. I love that story today. There's a lot of other things. You know, Chris Fedor has grown so much as a basketball writer over the years, and I will tell you, um, David, I'm hard on judging basketball writers, partly because I did it. Of all the jobs I've ever had that done well, yeah, I did baseball too, but I felt I was the best at the NBA. And like Brian Winhurst was my protege till now, I turned to Brian at times. Well, Chris is now moved from the same thing too, where I would talk to him about writing and this and that. And now I'm calling him, and say, Chris, what do you see? What do you think? And stories like that and others, you could just tell he has uh, a lot of connections with the team and he gets what they're doing. And he understood, too, what JB has brought in, which is very, very different. Jim Jones and I were talking a little while ago because I was doing a calves show. And he said, JB is as good a communicator as a coach as he's ever been around.
1: Well, and I was going to ask you, Terry, he, he kind of coaches use different ways to get the message to, through to players. And we talked last week, a lot of it is taking minutes away mm-hmm. or not running plays for you. I thought it was interesting how JB, his quote that he used was, we've gone from being junkyard dogs to fat cats, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> which I thought was a great image. And it, it was a way to call the team out in public without hanging it on one guy yes. or two guys. And it really, ma- you know how athletes are. They don't like to be called soft. Yep. I mean, we, we, we have a great story up right now on cleveland.com that uh, Nathan Baird and, Cle- and Stephen Means combined on about uh, what it's been like to be the parent of an Ohio State football player for the last 360-some days after Michigan beat them up up oh, there and called them soft. I got to read that. And and I thought JB kind of tapped into that a little bit. And it's like, you know, you guys are fat cats. And I don't know how much of an impact it had. But things like the fat cats thing and things like Lamar Stevens, you're right, Terry. It's it's culture. What did you think of the job JB has done here? Did he wait too long to make this move, or do you think he was right to kind of let it play out during the losing streak to see if it would self-correct? I how do you think, think he, he handled that?
0: Because Levert has been a 20-point scorer, and Levert tried very hard to do that role. He want, he probably did go too long, but sometimes how Francona would go too long with a veteran too, remember that. It's out of respect for that. So that when the move is finally made, you're playing a long game, you know, a season with months and months, that everybody knows, oh, that makes sense, including the player who's been, you know, moved out or or his role has changed. So I think that's what he was doing. And also, by the way, the other day against Atlanta, I'm watching, JV, there was a period where he thought the defense was, was sagging against the Hawks. So what he did, he not only had Stevens out there, he put Isaac Okoro out there. And he had Isaac Okoro, Stevens, a couple big guys and a guard, I think it was Mitchell, And it was like go after them, dogs. I mean, that's really (laughs) what it was. And then, of course, when you work hard on defense, you get some easy baskets on offense that they that tends to follow. But I love that spirit of this, even though that was a game where Osmond was scoring a lot. You know, we had you have good Chetty and bad Chetty. There's nothing in between with him. There's never average Osman. He's either going to be really good or he's bad, and get him out of there quick. If the first three shots at the side of the backboard and bounce off his head, you know that. And other times he's shooting from upside down and he makes them. You just have to see where he's at. But that was a sign too. See that when we talked about menace, that sends a message like, no, we're going to get tougher. And here's the the, the other thing to keep in mind when you make the change in the lineup. You have to give your big guys the ball if you want them to keep defending and rebounding. You have to do that. And they when one guy just gives up shots, it allows the ball more often to go to Allen and Mobley. I like how Mobley and Allen are kind of working on some high-low passing to help each other out. Um, it's really going to fun be fun all year to watch how this team keeps evolving and changing. And wait... I know I'm going like a long Hubie Brown didactic thing. <laughs> Wait till Ruby Rick uh, Ricky Rubio comes. When Ricky Rubio comes, remember this: last year, when Rubio and Garland played together, they. This is hard to believe, but it's true. They had the highest plus minus of any duo in the NBA. And when Rubio comes in, those big guys are going to get a big bigger pieces of the pie. And I will say this: Mitchell and Garland will even learn more about how to throw that ball into the post by just playing and being around that guy. Yeah. That's something to look forward to. Um, I want to ask you, Terry. So
1: Garland, Mitchell, Mobley, Allen, and then the fifth guy right now, Lamar Stevens, the the, kind of the odd man out is Karis Levert for the Mm -hmm. moment. Do you think this could be a good thing for him, even though he's out of the starting lineup and everybody wants to start, but with him coming off the bench, there's not guy as many guys on the floor who need the ball. Yep. Could this be a good thing for him, or do you think he see he the kind of player you could see who kind of would take it personally and be like, all right, well, I guess I'm out of the mix. What do you well, think?
0: Well, he, be- he better make it a good thing because he's a free agent at the end of the year. Uh, let's just start from that. Secondly, he seems to be a good guy and, and guess that part of it. But the bench scoring has been all over the place, good and bad this year. There's not been very consistent. And with Kevin Love having this, he's playing with this, what, stress fracture in his shooting hand of his right thumb. Kevin, to me, looked like he was realized I better do more rebounding and stuff like that. He did not look good shooting the ball. So Levert scoring is going to be – because I think he's more consistent than, than Osman. Because after that, you don't get much scoring from anybody else off the bench. So that that rolls wide open. It's much like what Utah has done. With Colin Sexton, they're putting him in there. He's playing 22 minutes a game, getting 13 points and shooting like 48%. There's the role. And that's an important role. It's a game-changing role. On top of that, when Levert will be playing, David, he will be playing generally against backups, which he is physically imposing, especially when he says she was in the backcourt at 6'6". Six six. I'm talking about Levert. I think it could really play to his strength. And
1: they've got so many options they can go to in terms of combinations, guys coming in off the bench, who's you know who's playing what spot. It's it's going to be really interesting to see how JB kind of negotiates that the next month or two here. So, um, all right, Terry. So the Cavs have a home game tomorrow night on Wednesday. We're taping this on Tuesday. They're Wednesday at home against Portland, and then there's a three-game Eastern Conference opponent trip Friday at Milwaukee at eight. Sunday at Detroit at six, and then Monday at Toronto, and that one's at seven thirty. So back to back on the road, but a short flight. So
0: yeah, they're right. That's a perfect trip, really. Yeah,
1: you... not too bad. Not yeah. too bad.
0: So, all
1: right, Terry, uh, you have been writing for the last week. Let's move into the Browns here. You wrote right after the game the other day, after the Browns lost to the Bills, that it was time to move on from Joe Woods, the defensive coordinator. I wanted you to kind of before we get. Further into it, talk about why you finally decided that that move needs to be made and, and what kind of made you write that after the Bills game.
0: Well, I've been moving in that direction. You know, I've been writing for probably months. I mean, seriously, the, when the offense was fairly playing fairly well and the defense was being disgraceful against the run game and so on, um, it just really bothered me. And then you started looking deeper into the stats, and and, and they looked terrible. And here is the reason. I was looking at that they're three and seven, and so I'm thinking, okay, whatever outside playoff shot, I I would I mean it would be just stunning if they made it. So what do you do with the last seven games besides watch Deshaun Watson when he comes back with six to go? What do you know about your defense? Right now, all you know is your defense is awful. In fact, generally Emails I'm getting from everybody thinks everybody had defense is bad right now. Of course, when you rank 31st and given up points um, You can feel that way and when you watch how other teams have run over the Browns you can feel that way So the question is this is it personnel or is it scheme now? usually it's part one or the other by changing the coach the defensive coordinator And even if you're bringing in Jason Tarver, who did it before, maybe there's some young guy in the staff, you get a chance to look at them with a fresh scheme and a fresh voice, much in the same way in the middle of the 2018 season when Freddie Kitchens replaced Todd Haley. And the offense, which was horrible at that point, got to be pretty good. And it answered some questions um, about some things. Now, the questions could be answered that, The new defensive coordinator comes in, and they still stink. Well, then that's on the front office. Okay, now we know it's a personnel thing. See, if you don't do it now, you can spend the whole off-season, well, we fired Joe Woods, and we got this new coordinator coming in, and he's going to fix everything so we don't have to make a lot of big changes uh, in personnel.
1: So I, I think, well, there's two parts of this you're getting into, Terry. The first one is the scheme and Joe Woods' coaching of the scheme.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we talked last week, Miles Garrett had a comment last week where he basically said, you know, what was the comment? You, uh, you It doesn't help if you want to run through a wall if everybody's running in the wrong direction, I think was his quote. Yep. And then after the Bills game, Grant, <laughs> Grant Delpit, um, maybe it was Monday, yeah. Uh, he said, in order to have trust, you have to know what you're doing. you got to have faith in everybody. You have to know what you're doing, and then your team has to have faith they know what they're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, then it never works. So this isn't Miles Garrett, who, if there's any untouchable players on the Browns, he would be one. This is Grant Delpit, a guy who's maybe starting to come into his own a little bit. Has had some some good moments this season, but also some bad ones. But when you start to see quotes like this, that kind of tells you that scheme is job one in terms of fixing this, right?
0: Well, that's what the players think. And I remember when uh, David Griffin replaced David Blatt with Ty Lue, and I was by the way, at that point <laughs> the Cavs had the top record. In Eastern Conference, I may add. It was like midseason. And so Griffin and I had a pretty good relationship. We were just kind of talking guy to guy. He goes, I was tired of these guys complaining about Blatt and all this stuff. And he didn't play in the NBA. I was tired of the excuses. So I guess I said, all right, I'm putting Ty Lue in there. He played in the league. You guys respect him. Now go to work. And it did work. Now, will this work this time. But that's what I would do whether whoever it is, you didn't like what was going on with Woods, all right, excuses are gone, this guy's coming in, we're going to simplify things or whatever it is, and let's see what you do now because I don't want to hear it. By the way, I thought Stefanski's answer to, uh, well, Miles Garrett said this, well, I'm going to talk about Miles. You know, Miles is Miles. I'm going to talk about Miles. No. You say, I don't want my players bringing criticism. Public. I will talk to Miles and everybody else on the team. It's okay to have criticism, but you bring it in house. So, do you think that you don't think that was just
1: an indication? I mean, if there's a problem here and the players are saying it in public, they should be fixing the problem. They shouldn't be talking to the players about it. I mean, the, the players don't say this stuff lightly. They, I don't think so. I don't either. And I, I think
0: that is just an indication of how it's gotten. Yes. And maybe it is all excuse making. The odd thing is, and I delineate this in the story, you know, when you break down the defenses of three years with Joe Woods, the decline is incredible. And by the way, so they talk about who they had last year versus this year. All right. Last year the two tackles are Malik McDowell and Malik Jackson. Malik Jackson is old and out of the NFL. Malik McDowell's um basically on the sidelines of personal problems. Their linebackers that are gone are Mac Wilson, who is now with New England. He started three games, primarily a special teams player, and Malcolm Smith, who's out of the NFL. So it's not as if they lost four guys who went to other teams and are playing great. And I believe the Browns are like 13th against the run last year. So explain this to me. I I can't, by the way, so then you have your due defensive ends are back. You've got all your safeties. The only change in the secondary has been Troy Hill is gone and Martin Emerson is here. And of course, Emerson, I think, has played pretty well.
1: He was the Browns' best graded cornerback on Sunday, Terry. But all right, so so what happened is the question. And I think what happened is Anthony Walker Jr. goes down. Yes. Your starting middle linebacker. And the other thing that happened, and this is not Joe Woods's fault, is that the pro- the progress and the talent of the guys they have signed at defensive tackle, they overestimated how good these guys were going to be. And I-, I keep looking every week at the defensive tackle grades, and it's it's striking. How bad PFF, they are! How bad they are! Yeah. Tommy Tokiai was the Browns' best-rated defensive tackle against the Bills. He played 11 snaps (laughs) and had a 53.4 grade, which is not great. The second-best-graded defensive tackle against the Bills on Sunday was Ben Still, who wasn't even on the team two weeks ago. They signed him off the Dolphins practice squad right last Mm -hmm. week, and he's your second-best defensive tackle. Coming in below Ben Still at 52.2 are Taven Bryant,
0: your free agent
1: signing, and Jordan Elliott, Brian's at Brian is at forty-seven and point zero, and Jordan Elliott is at thirty-two point nine. Yeah, and that is the story. I mean, the the defensive backs are having to make so many tackles, mm-hmm. and and they have shown on plays that they are not interested in tackling some plays, um, and and others they are. But you add all that up, you've got a defense that's soft in the middle, and here's where you're at. It can't stop anybody.
0: And then if you make the change that I suggest and all that continues, then it's like, all right, Andrew Berry, what did you do here? What are you gonna do about it? Because it ain't scheme. What percentage of it do
1: you think is scheme right now, or do you not know?
0: I think I don't really know. Yeah, you know, I'm guessing half though, just because I'll go back to there were not so many dramatic changes on defense. Now Have teams changed their way of attacking the Browns? Yes, they have. But that's what I want to find out, David. If you stay status quo, all you know is what you know right now. And it's easy for the front office to make an excuse and blame the coordinator in the offseason. Whereas... If you make the change now and you change the coordinator, and by the way, I have nothing personally against Joe Woods, and on top of it, Joe Woods is not coming back. I mean, he knows he's a lame duck. He, he's been around the NFL a long time. So the fact that he would be fired now versus the end of the season, I mean, to him, it might even be a relief. I'm sure he'd hate losing the job, but that's he just sees how it's going to play out. Yeah, I, I, I It's interesting,
1: Terry. Um, I think Troy Aikman might have said this last week when I was watching a game he was doing, and... He he said, I wonder if – so you got all these passing offenses, the Chiefs yeah. and the Bills, and everybody's playing two high safeties, mm-hmm. and really – and the Browns have done this. They have emphasized guys who can run sideline to sideline yeah. and chase people down. And with all these two high safeties, teams are going back now to running the ball, right? You're going to play two high Absolutely. safeties. We're going to run. We're going to run right at you vertically. We're not going to run sideline to sideline. We're going to run stuff in in the A and B gaps. Stop it if you can, but you look really light and you look really fast, but you can't stop this. And I wonder if the Browns are behind the curve on this right now with the amount of um, money they have and the amount of experience they have at defensive tackle. Just a it, question.
0: Oh, and know. it's a legit one. That I want that answered, by the way. So let's find out. You know, was something else. Let's find out if somebody can come in here and get some safeties up near the line of scrimmage more. Because remember, that was one the third, the three safeties thing that they would help against the run. All this stuff. I'm not good enough to know any of this. Other than I'm good enough to know what the numbers say right now. The defense stinks. It's 31st and giving up points. It's 24th or whatever against the run, and keeps declining. And also, you have players saying weird things like Miles Garrett is um, saying. I did quite know it's, it's okay if you know how to run through the wall, but you don't know what direction you're going. And, I, and I'm a little tired of Miles with the cryptic stuff, too. I really am. Uh, so this is what you just need a guy to go in there and say, this, is, this stops. And by the way, Kevin Stefanski is the head coach. He's not just the offensive coordinator. And sometimes he looks like he's just being the offensive coordinator. Whether it's fair or not, that is the perception your fans and your customers have. The Browns have to realize this. And saying it's on me is not enough. Well, if it's on you, do what you can to change it.
1: Well, I got an answer that's going to solve everything, Terry. They should bring in a new defensive lineman, Lamar Stevens. Just drop them right. <laughs> they take do care need Lamar
0: people. Stevens. They need AnnoCoral, both of them up there, and the Junkyard Dog Award. Bring that in
1: there. That's right. They'll be giving Junkyard, junkyard Dog Awards out left and right. So, All right, let's take a break, Terry. Okay. Um, we will talk a little bit of Guardians. There's not a bunch going on with the team, but we did want to get into a little bit. Uh, talk about your faith column this week for Thanksgiving, and we got some really interesting, hey, Terry, questions about whether – American League and National Team National League baseball teams should retire two numbers. So I want to get your thoughts on that. We'll be right back on Terry's talking. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're back on Terry's talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Uh, Terry, we didn't get to talk about this last week. The Guardians decided to move on from Nolan Jones. The And uh, Joe Noga and Paul Hoynes are our two reporters who cover the team they asked about kind of the reasons behind it, and they wrote about this, that there wasn't really a pathway for him here was, was what they said. But what did you think about that, and did they give up on him too soon?
0: Uh, I talked to Chris Antonetti about this, too, right after that. Okay, Nolan Jones was originally a third baseman. In fact, he was being groomed in case they felt they had to trade uh, Jose because they couldn't get him signed. When Jose signed, that blocked that. Then they took him, put him in the outfield, and to his credit, he really did work hard at learning the outfield, and I thought he was okay in right field. Uh, They were going to try to work on him at first base, but suddenly they sat down and they said, we have a whole bunch of young outfielders that are pretty good. It's almost like, who knew? How did this happen? This is Cleveland. There's never enough outfielders. We always have a lot of pitchers, never enough outfielders. So they began, remember, Nolan Jones is the lefty hitter. And they go, well, Stephen Kwan, he looks legit in left field. Gold glove. The way he plays, too, um, it you don't think you see a big decline. He just doesn't look like he's going to be pitched too easily or that. Center field, they will live with Miles Straw. He's their, he's their Lamar Stevens. They'll live with him. You know, he and they want a defensive catcher. We'll talk a little bit about the catching situation, too. But they'll live with straw. They think he actually hit like 230 or something, I think, after the last two months. It was an improvement. So that left right field. Now, there is some concern that perhaps Oscar Gonzalez will begin to get pitched to and some of the holes will show. But we have been hearing this about Gonzalez since he was in Double A. It hasn't happened yet. So they got those three. And then... My favorite, and we've been fans of this have been hearing me. Will Brennan, they finally brought him up. Will Brennan drove in like 107 runs in 125 minor league games and hit like 320. He comes up. What does he do? He is 342 in September. He could play all the positions. He's also a left handed hitter. So you got left handed hitters in Quan and Brennan, then in the minors, and they're Excited about him, not for spring training, but later on, George Valero, another left-handed hitter with power in the outfield. So they felt all those guys, we just went through our way, not only rated ahead of Jones, but quite a bit ahead of Jones. So then they have their 40-man roster crunch, and I'm not going to get into all that. So they just kind of called around. And they actually have their eye on this guy, Juan Brito who's an infielder, but they got Class A from Colorado. And I was talking to one Guardians official, and I said, he was only rated like the 30th prospect in the, you know, the system for the Rockies. He said, I don't want to sound arrogant, he says, but we have our own ratings. And we have a pretty good track record of trading for other people's prospects. We like him. He's our kind of guy. More walks than strikeouts. We think he has power potential. He could play a couple spots in the infield. He's young. We like him. And so take him and, you know, Jones, they sent him on his way. So that's what went behind it. But it was the rise of Quan first, then Oscar, then Will Brennan with Valera on the horizon that allowed them to say, we can give up Nolan Jones. Boy, it's, I was just thinking about, I
1: think a year ago at this time, we were trying to speculate on who the starting outfield was going to yeah. be and where was any production going to come from. And now, like you said, there's just like a wealth of guys and a wealth of options and they can kind of throw them all out there and see what they do.
0: The really spring a big training, David, I wrote a column early on. I talked to Miles Straw and basically the theme was, well, at least they have one outfielder. I mean, it really was that That's, was it?
1: I think that was the headline on the story. Yeah, I
0: think it was. At least they have one outfielder because <laughs> yeah. we know he could catch the ball. And at that point, he hit like two seventy or two eighty, and he's like a two fifty five career big league hitter. I don't, you know, I I think that was a bit of an aberration last year, but he also has a, an elite skill. By the way, I'm not going to go all caught up in all those stats, but use the eye test. He catches everything. He throws to all the right bases. Many of you may not have seen Rick Manning play center field. Um, Manning was like that, very similar, defensively smart, knew where to throw the ball. But uh, Straw has a better arm, so you have him. But as you, as you mentioned, now I mean, Quant and Straw won Gold Gloves, and yet I think it's not easy to get votes from people in Cleveland when you're young players, that shows you how good they were defensively. I mean, They were eye-popping to other uh, people voting on this. And then in right field, I thought Oscar was decent. Everything they told me about Oscar when when they were struggling, it's not been true. They said he, he... now, he did lose a bunch of weight before this season, so he got in better shape because they, they said he could get fat. They said he was not very good in the outfield, and they said he would just swing at everything. Well, he swings at everything early in the account, but he doesn't later in the account. And he's pretty good out there, and he's got a great arm. So the outfield there, and then you would work in my guy, Will Brennan. Um, now, granted, you could have three guys get hurt, and you wish you would have had Nolan Jones. But Nolan Jones also has a lot of hole in his, holes in his swing. So it's fun to look at that move in the context of what has happened, as you said, uh, in the outfield. I mean, remember, they would start guys like Ben Gamble and all these just, just these guys off the street. It just, ugh. Yeah, and it, there's something to be said
1: for having a guy in right field who's got a plus arm like he does. Yeah. And and I think we saw that quite a, quite a bit last season where he was able to hold guys, uh, just because of the threat of his arm. So that's that's a that's a change for sure. So, all right, let's move on. Terry, your faith column this week. Um, Thanksgiving is, it's a week always when you write a thank you note to the readers. And I, I thought you might want to talk about that for a minute because uh, it's kind of an annual tradition.
0: Well, I've written these probably for, I don't know, close to 30 years now, going back to us at the Beacon Journal. But never before in a thank you column to readers, has the name George Meade appeared? Do you know who he was? He he did get a win in a very important contest. Yeah, I'm. I I, ke- I keep thinking he pitched for the Yankees or the Indians in the 50s. Well, he who was is he? sort of with the Yankees <laughs> because I wrote about. I feel like I've been doing this job since the Gattle, Battle of Gettysburg 1863, and it you know everybody kind of assumes if you follow the Civil War just casually, you don't know your stuff that the winning. General was Ulysses S. Grant at Gettysburg, because Robert E. Lee certainly took the loss. Uh, But no, it was George Meade who had the beloved nickname of the old snapping turtle.
1: Uh, I got to brush up on my Civil War history. Yes, he was bald
0: and crusty, (laughs) and that. So it's kind of like just like two broadcast
1: people I know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you are. You just just crusty and didn't like it. So. And then to the old snapping uh, turtles credit when to carry the civil war thing just a little longer when Grant then came from the Western theater and took over the whole uh, army, he uh, kept me as his number two guy and that worked. Okay. Probably grant paid more of the good cop. And I think the snapping turtle discontinued to snap, but he did get the win. And I mentioned how that was probably my first assignment or at least it felt like it. And I'm so thankful. Um, Case, Some of the younger people have never seen it. I've run a picture on the column of a typewriter. Kind of like an Etzel or a Zeppelin, one of these things from the past. I mean, I actually remember, and even a couple times where I would call the paper, and I would say, get me, rewrite. And I would be dictating my story that I had typed up to somebody on the other end who was typing it. And they would be setting it into print. Now, what is the point of this? That I've been able to last that long, and the readers have been wonderful to me. Um, and it's just astounding through all that technology, all the changes. Um, I still think there's something magic about the newspaper, especially the Sunday paper. Um, I read stuff in that paper I just wouldn't read online. And my usually I have four stories in. A Sunday paper. We kind of saved them for that. And the Sunday paper also is a, where they put the faith column on the front of the metro section, the B section. And the fans accepting me, both writing the faith column and the sports after all these years. Um, I mean, this is my dream job, David. I would look at um, I'd go to the old stadium with my dad and this is when I figured out real early on, my father played minor league baseball for a year, and my brother was a high school coach, and I was sitting on the bench at Benedictine, and I knew this: there was no career there. And I wanted to write already, and I would see uh, Russ Snyder and Hal Lebowitz and uh, Bob Sudik, these guys kind of walking up there with their typewriter in the old cat catwalks uh, cat to the uh, press box, and I would think, boy, it would be nice to do that for a living. And I remember when I was working at Fisher-Fazio Food Warehouse during that time, and in the summer, and these guys would be sitting around with the plane dealer, and they would be talking about um, what's in the paper. And I think, boy, that would be something if that were my stories. And now we get them on podcasts, we get them all different ways, but to be able to do it for that long, and granted it wasn't 1863, but I have been in this market since December of 79. And that is just to me astounding. And now and then I get emails. People say, "Oh, you remind me of Hal Leiblett or Chuck Heaton or somebody like that." And I just it just makes me feel so good because those were the guys I grew up reading.
1: Well, well said, Terry. And, and I know there's an entire generation of journalists who have been inspired by you. And um, and I'm just thankful to be able to work with you every day. So.
0: By the way, you know. People may think I invented scribbles in my notebook. Actually. George Meade. George Meade. No, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. We did Civil War scribbles during (laughs) Gettysburg right afterwards, you know. That picket's charge was just a bad move, you know. Lee should should have went to the bullpen. That that went bad from the beginning. Talk about bad defense. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Don't do that. Anyway, um, but where I was going is if you really want to know the idea for Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. Check it out. All these chapters with numbers. You know, Proverbs thirty two, five. It's right there. It's kinda like and number five from Detroit. The special teams getting their third kick block this year.
1: I didn't so that's where it came from, huh?
0: That and how Lebowitz did it. And there was a guy um, out in California and I it, oh boy, I figures his name would escape me. He used to call it Notes on a Scorecard. Alan Malamud was his name. You work for the L.A. – I think it was called the L.A. News or Press. It's a long-gone paper. But if you just go there – somebody told me early on in this business, if you don't know what to write, rather than write bad, write notes. It's kind of like popcorn. You know, you can go eat a whole bowl of bad popcorn, just kind of hope the next handful is better.
1: <laughs> I love that. All right. Um, well, speaking of interacting with – The readers, Terry, we got a couple of good Hey Terry questions I wanted to get to before we run out of time here. So uh, this first one is from Russ Gantos, and he says, Hey Terry, I'm still a Browns fan even after 30 years in Texas. I (laughs) I know Kevin Stefanski loves his two tight end system, but if you're talking about having your best players on the field as much as possible, how can he possibly defend having Harrison Bryant playing more than Kareem Hunt in a game? I'd bet every NFL head coach would agree they'd much rather plan to defend against a Bryant-focused offense than one with both Nick Chubb and Hunt playing together, and that increases when Deshaun Watson returns. Uh, Thanks for the question, Russ. So I I did look it up, Terry, just from this past game against the Bills. Harrison Bryant played 56 snaps, and Kareem Hunt played 31. So this certainly isn't a Harrison Bryant-focused offense, but – uh, what do you think about Russ's point about snap counts for those two guys? And
0: how about Farrell Brown? I think Farrell you...
1: Brown was around 8 or 11. I don't even yeah, But what of I'm
0: saying, yeah. you see guys like that getting time. Because I actually think, I know he dropped the pass. I actually think Harrison Bryant can help them. And Najoku, by the way, i have, that's one where I disagree with Andrew Barry on the contract. And, you know, Najoku's come a long way. I have to give him credit on that. But. Why can't you split out Kareem Hunt more in the slot? Now, David, seriously, you speak to that. What? Do, why do you think Stefanski has shied away from that?
1: Well, so what's the mantra we've heard from fans all season, right? Run the ball, run the ball, run the mm-hmm. ball, give it to Chubb, give it to Chubb. And you have to have blocking to do that. And I think, I mean, Harrison Bryant is not the best – blocking tight end that the Browns have ever had. I think he's improved quite a bit since they drafted him. He's gotten bigger. But if you want to run, then that's how Stefanski runs is by having tight ends on the field to block. Could like could they come out with one fewer tight end, have Hunt split out wide and run out of that formation? I think so,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah, or even it's throw it try. and throw it short. See, one of the things that I keep harping on is it's not simply the number of carries it's the number of touches that you give your running backs. So the screen passes or just the little floor-out passes to them. Why not? I mean, you keep saying they have to tackle eligible and all that other stuff going on in there. But in the end, really, the offense has been ranked in the top 10 all year in scoring points. And what's to lose, I guess, is the yeah. question. So. Well, why not? You know, it's kinda like that that falls under the foul of the fire of the coordinator, change it. What's what you're three and seven. You've lost six of seven. They're not sitting there saying, You know what, this is a perfect Picasso and I'm afraid I'm gonna mess this masterpiece up by just erasing some of the lines. For heaven's sake. <laughs> Give it a whirl, why not? Give so. it a whirl, you know. <laughs> Let, let's go a little Rembrandt instead of Picasso, you know. I don't know. All right. Um, All right.
1: This uh, our second question is from Peter Miller. He's from Vienna, Ohio. He says, "Hey Terry, the Roberto Clemente Award has been in the news recently. MLB has resisted having all teams retire Roberto Clemente's number and placing his impact on par with that of Jackie Robinson, who also has the Rookie of the Year Award named in his honor. Why not think outside the box and retire Clemente's number in the NL and Larry Doby's
0: number in the American League? What do you think of that?" A, I've never thought of that question, and B, I love it. I've written a couple columns over the years. It started when I wrote the book, uh, Our Tribe, and I really looked into Larry Doby. Larry Doby was ill prepared by Bill Vec and the Indians at the time. He came in the middle of the 47 season. It wasn't like Jackie Robinson, the great experiment in 1946, when he came in and he played a year in Triple A. Jackie Robinson did for Montreal with the Dodgers. He went to spring training at 47 with the Dodgers. The, by then, these guys knew whether they like it or not, he could play. Though, Doby is dropped in like he parachutes in the middle of the 47 season. I'm serious because I, I got this documented. He walks into the clubhouse. Lou Boudreaux was just told the day before by – he was the player manager – by Bill Vec, the owner. Oh, we're bringing in Larry Doby from the Negro Leagues, and he says to um, Vec, "Well, what does he play?" Oh, we signed, He plays second base. And Vec and uh, goes, "We have an all-star at second base. We have Joe Gordon." So Doby comes in the next day. And he says, he says the exact what well, was son. What what position do you really like to play? He goes, well, I played second base. And he says, son, we can't play you there because um, we have Joe Gordon. He says, can you try first? I've never played there. And if you look at his it, forty-seven season, it's a disaster. Then the next year, this is fascinating too. They bring in Tris Speaker. Who, by the way, was rumored to be kind of a, have racist attitudes. Uh, but I think that was probably more a product of the time and kind of revisionist history than that because Hal Webowitz knew him and, and he, Hal told me this story. So, Speaker comes in and the assigned speaker was a great center fielder in the 1920 Indians and then to teach Doby to play the outfield. They become big buddies. You know, this is mentor and this. Speaker saves. Doby's career and run regard just got him going. Of course, Doby ends up having several all-star seasons in that. So where am I going with that? Absolutely his number deserves to be retired. He had a tougher road than Jackie Robinson.
1: Well, maybe this is something that can get some traction. And, of course, you know,
0: Roberto Clemente with all the yes. humanitarian work yeah, he did that's, and, and, that's the he and
1: the impact he had and the, the player he was, that's a no-brainer too. But You know uh, what I yeah. like
0: about that too? A Latino was honored.
1: And talk about someone who influenced generations of players that came after him as well.
0: How about that, by the way? You know, he was uh, drafted by, I believe, Branch Rickey, the same guy that, uh, I hope I'm right on this, because if not, I'm sure I'll hear about it. Uh, Branch, I believe, was running the Pirates at the time, and he took Clemente in one of those Rule 5 drafts.
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah, a bit I have of to look that stuff. up to hope I'm right, because sometimes when I think I'm so right, I find out how wrong I am. But he definitely <laughs> was taken in one of those minor league drafts.
1: All right. Hey, thanks for those two questions, you guys. Um, if you want to send a question in for next week's podcast, you can do it a couple of ways. One is just to send an email to sports at cleveland.com and put Hey Terry or Terry's Talking in the subject line, and we'll try and get it on next week. Or you can go to Terry's Facebook page where he has a lot of stuff, And send it there and we'll get it on next week's podcast. So thanks for those. I think that's going to do it, Terry. Um, Oh, I wanted to give a plug real quick. We mentioned Chris Fedor and Mm -hmm. Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga. All of our beat reporters have texting accounts. And I know there's a lot of crazy stuff going on with social media if you sign up for our text, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, you're going to get some great inside information from the reporters as they're covering the team, stuff they're thinking about when they're sitting around their house. Uh, it's it's a great way to have a conversation with the beat writers and just kind of avoid all the, the the garbage you see on social media these days. And the other thing, and we're thankful for all the support that readers give us, but it's a great way to support the journalism we do. And it's only three ninety nine a month for for Ohio State and for the Cavs, so check it out. Just go to the team pages and look at the top. You'll see a blue banner. We would really be thankful for any support you can give us, and uh and thanks for listening to the podcast. I guess All we're right. good, right, Terry? Anything else you no, want to say? No,
0: I finally have. I actually was correct in Roberto Clemente. Oh, you signed by the Dodgers. He was 19 years old. He bats 257 in Montreal. And Branch Rickey, who had, of course, been a with the Dodgers and in other places, he is now running the beleaguered Pirates. He hears about this kid. Remember, they didn't have all the scouting and all the stuff. Clemente. And he talks to um, his friends with the Dodgers. They're begging him not to take him. And what does he do? He drafts him at the age of 19. So Branch Rickey, who broke the color line with Jackie Robinson, then goes and takes Clemente from his old team, and sets them up in in Pittsburgh.
1: That is some story.
0: You were right. You won't be
1: getting any mail. from. It's like
0: I remember stuff from the Civil War and from there, I can't remember like anything from the last 25 years.
1: <laughs> I'm the same way. All right. Well, Terry, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Enjoy uh, enjoy the day with everything you have going on. And, and thanks to everybody for listening to the podcast. We really enjoying doing this, and we love hearing from you. Uh, and we hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving, too. We'll catch you next week. Uh Terry's talking.